Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, Heavenly Father, thank you that you're with us, um, that you are not just with us, but that you are for us, that you are here in this space and that you are emotionally invested in us, that you're in a deep, deep relationship with us beyond what we uh, can comprehend, beyond what we could know, that we uh, live and move and have our being within you, that it's because of your breath in our lungs that we live. And that, Father, that you are for us, that you've set your heart upon us, and, and, and the reason is because of your great love for your good creation, Father. And we just thank you for your presence, that you are active, um, that you're with us and that you're for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, happy uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, one person is in grief. Uh, it's kind of cool. I, I was looking up, uh, you know, the, the, the hymn, St. Patrick's Breastplate, the hymn. And I found this uh, old translation of it, and there's this line where it says, Christ in the poop, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and, it, and it's referring to, like, Christ in the poop deck. Because uh, St. Patrick obviously was a seafarer. But um, Christ in the Poop, I just thought, what a wonderful line. Um, Sarah makes up songs about poop. She's at that age where she will talk about things being in poop. Um, and I just thought, Christ in the Poop, it actually made me get all philosophical, as philosophical as you can be about poop. But just the idea that Christ is with us when, when poop happens, as the bumper sticker says, you know? Like, he's not removed, he's not scared of it, he's not put off by it. But actually, that's exactly where we find Jesus. He is uh, Christ in the poop. Um, and so that really kind of frames, poop frames, what I'm going to talk about today. Christ in the poop. Um, so, I'm going to go in a kind of an uncharacteristic direction for me. Uh, well, you guys can be the judge of that. Um, like generally speaking, I'm quite cerebral. I like to explain things. I like to try and give answers or exegete the text quite closely and things like this. Um, I'm kind of pragmatic or realistic in in how I talk about the Bible and how I talk about uh, Christ uh, and how I talk about God working in the world. Like I always try and um, connect it to you know how we might reach out socially or something like that. Um, whether I succeed or not, that's a different matter. Again, you guys can be the judge. But as I was praying over this, it kind of took on a life of its own. Uh, I don't know if people have experienced that. Just where you think you're going one way, but you seem to be continuously pulled in a different direction. So much so that uh, I had kind of a message, and I've had to kind of edit it out. It's kind of like there may be, there may at some time be a director's cut with all the bits I've cut out, but there's like this whole kind of Walter Brueggemann-esque section. Walter Brueggemann's one of my favourite sort of authors, but um, I've actually cut that out. I've been disciplined, so there is hope. Um, so last week, we spoke about Abraham. Before that, there was uh, Noah, and before that, there was Adam and Eve. So this week, we're talking about Isaac. Okay, so last week, when I spoke about Abraham, um, we looked at how... God is a God of this deep mutual relationship, that he's emotionally invested in his people, that there's not this aloof God with all the power that is somehow benevolent towards us as a distant king might be, but that he is interdependent with us, 
that he stakes his reputation on how we live and move and have our being in this world and we are relying upon him. It's not a one-way street where we go to him for everything we need. No, God needs us. Um, And what we looked at was that, that God subverts the idea that might is right, that the strong can exploit the weak. Um, no, God is the powerful one, but still, when he cut covenant with Abraham, he made all the move. He made all the move to the weaker party. He staked his relationship upon the weaker party. The, the powerful served the weaker, and that we also looked at when um, Abraham came to sacrifice Isaac. That you know, like God gave Abraham blessings. God gave Abraham good things, and in the ancient world, what would be expected is that you give good things back. That there's a reciprocation. That there's a quid pro quo arrangement. And well, it's how God subverts that because God says, "No, actually, here, here's the sacrifice. You don't have to give me anything. I've given you all these blessings, these promises, and you don't have to give me anything. I'll provide. I'll even provide the sacrifice." And what that does is it cuts away this kind of back-scratching arrangement, you know, this um, mutual beneficial relationship where if you do something for me, I'll do something for you. But it also cuts away that whole kind of eye for an eye justice. You did something bad to me, so I can do something bad to you. Or your ancestor did something bad to me, so I, I can do something bad to you now. So God subverts this, this power exploiting the weak, but God also subverts this whole reciprocation, this... this um, you do unto me, I'll do unto you. God cuts all that away and he subverts it with grace. Okay, so, um, and why does he do that? And we looked at it, it's because of love, because love. You know, Deuteronomy, it says, you were not a powerful nation. You were not the, the most prosperous. You were not the biggest. You were not the strongest. You were the ones that I loved. That's why. Because Love. So if you want to turn with me to Romans 4.17, we're going to talk about Isaac. This is such a brilliant verse, and it's a little bit of a T.D. Jakes verse. I feel like I should be in a suit with a handkerchief and be sweating and have a guy playing the organ, because I'm going to get full on T.D. Jakes this morning. So this, the, the, the chap, chapter 4 of Romans is, is uh, Paul looking at Abraham as a, as a type or as an example of how God works in the world. Some very complicated uh, exegesis can be done on Romans, uh, but I'm not going to go there. I just want to highlight this one verse, verse 17. I have made you a father of many nations, so he's referring to Abraham. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So it's quite, uh, Paul writes backwards a lot in very complicated statements, but I want you just to take this. The God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And so Paul is referring to when Abraham got given Isaac. And typically for Isaac, as we will discover, he's not mentioned. Isaac is completely overlooked as the, the, the one who is the incarnate promise, okay? We know a lot about Isaac around him, but not about him. Isaac is uh, kind of a funny character in, in the preaching meeting. And in subsequent discussions about who's going who's gonna to do Isaac, crickets. 
tumbleweed. Who wants to talk about Isaac? No one. He's a bit boring. Really. <laughs> he's he's a bland guy. Um, you know, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham's kind of interesting. You know, quarter of Genesis is written about Abraham. Jacob's pretty interesting too because he's kind of like a bit shifty, a bit of a schemer, a bit of a lad about town. Isaac. Yeah. It, it made me think of, and apologies to all you middle siblings, but um, it made me think of those memes about middle siblings. I'm an only child, so I, I don't s- subscribe to any of this. But, um, you know, like the eldest one is the one with all the responsibilities. So Abraham, he gets all these grand promises, this different relationship with God. And the youngest one, Pete, is the one with all the indulgences. Oh, he's the youngest one. He's the baby of the family. They can get away with whatever they want. And the middle one's kind of like neither here nor there. You know, Jacob got to be the shifty one, he's the schemer, stole his older brother's birthright and all that. And yet there's this character in between, this, this Isaac character. And even in his bit in Genesis, even the bit where it talks about Isaac, it doesn't talk about Isaac. There's a whole bit about Abraham's servant going to find a wife for Isaac. There's a whole bit about Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, having their squabbles. But not a whole lot about Isaac. He's like this overlooked character. Um, So we could focus on that, the overlookedness of Isaac. But actually I want to focus on the fact that Isaac is a tangible proof of God's faithfulness. God promised Abraham something. And it wasn't a vain promise it wasn't an arbitrary promise it was an unrealistic promise but it was tangible in Isaac Isaac is the fulfilment of that promise he is a promise in flesh he is the incarnation of the faithfulness of God and we're going to focus on that and I want you to hold in the back of your mind all the worship songs that we sang this morning God is a miracle working God. He is faithful. He came. He is present. So if we think about Isaac's story, and I'm relying upon you guys to know a little bit about Isaac, he's like a repeat of Abraham. It's really funny, actually, because I started to read the text about Isaac, and I started to underline all the things that Isaac was doing, a bit like I did with Abraham, everything that Abraham said to God. And I just realised actually Isaac's like a really, really bad sequel in a film franchise. We had the, 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 the first film, Abraham, and he was really impressive. There was all this amazing, like all these amazing dynamics. It was brand new. There was all this really interesting stuff going on between God and Abraham. And then it's like the filmmakers decided, wow, this really worked. Let's make another one. And so they did, and they made this second film called Isaac. And they were like, well, what worked in the Abraham film? And then they put it into the Isaac film. But there was no surrounding narrative. There was no interest. There was no tension. And it's a bit like Isaac repeats Abraham, but just in a more bland way. Um, So, what was the same? So, first of all, let's talk about the wives. So, Sarah and Rebecca. So, Sarah is Abraham's wife. Uh, Rebecca was Isaac's wife. Both of them were barren. Literally, the first time we meet Sarah in, in, in Genesis, 
it has this statement about her. Genesis 11, right at the end of Genesis 11. It says that Sarah was barren and she had no children. There's an emphatic nature to the repetition there. She is barren and she has no children. Zero chance. And then we find out that Rebecca's the same. We find out that Sarah is related to Abraham. She's a half-sister. And that Rebecca is Isaac's cousin. Apparently that's how they roll. Um, But that leads us to this other thing as well. So... um, both wives were really beautiful. Sarah and Rebecca were both really beautiful. And, and that ends up getting their husbands into trouble. So they travel uh, to, to a place called Gerar. And there's a king in the land of Gerar called Abimelech. And, and so as Abraham and then his son after him, there's, they say to their wives, don't say you're my wife, say you are my sister. Because if they think you're my wife, they will kill me to take you. So I'll give you, the heroic husband type, to this king. Just don't let on because they will kill me. And then both times, God intervenes. So Abraham and Isaac are being less than um, admirable in their actions. And yet God still intervenes. Both times, Abimelech, poor Abimelech, thinks he's being given something. And then God has to intervene in a dream and say, seriously, mate, don't do that. It's not going to end well if if you go there. And then Abimelech has to do the thing and say, go to Abraham and then to Isaac and say, why did you do this thing? (laughs) Seriously, you got me in trouble with God. You know, it's a little bit like little sister telling on their big sister, God! And then that leads us to another repetition of the wells. Now, I said last week how I spent some of my gap year living in, in this place near Besheva. Besheva is the, the place of seven wells. And so we have the seven wells in the life of Abraham. And then Isaac goes to this exact same place after he's told off by Abimelech to reopen these seven wells. And it's this place called Besheva at the, at the top end of the Negev. And so why the repetition? Was the author of Genesis genuinely thinking that it could be a rival to the the Marvel Cinematic Universe by having a sequel? Maybe they were thinking it could be a bit more like the Star Wars universe and some really lame sequels. You know, did they run out of material? It's about the repetition, it's all about the emphasis. You know, just like saying Sarah was barren and had no children... You know, the repetition, they use repetition a lot in the Bible when you see phrases that are repeated or words that are repeated or even entire lives, lives, lives repeated. There's an emphasis that comes with that. What, what are they trying to tell you to look out for? Okay, they didn't have control B and highlight the text to make it look bigger in their scrolls. They couldn't do some fancy font. Well, maybe they could have. So it's going to, you know, but ancient scrolls just didn't have this function of... Um, emphasis so they repeat things so what what is God trying to tell us through the narrative of Isaac and there's there's this emphasis about promise because we find that Isaac 
is the fruit of promise. Isaac is a tangible working out of the promises of God. And then when Jacob and Esau come, there's a tangible working out of the promises of God. Fundamentally, we have an incarnational faith. As much as people like me want to talk about doctrine and theology and concepts and philosophies of how we believe, Christianity at its heart is an incarnational faith. To show us what God is like, we didn't have a load of philosophers debating and discussing and then leaving treaties on it. Although, you know, some of the Bible could be considered that. To show us most pointedly what God is like, God became flesh. This is what the Father looks like. 1 John says, we have seen, we have touched, we have heard, we have physically encountered what God is like, and therefore we tell it to you. That's how 1 John starts. God is in the flesh, and Isaac is fleshed out miracle. Isaac is fleshed out promise. Isaac is fleshed out faithfulness. God is deeply involved. He's emotionally wedded to his people. I could rehash the message about Abraham. And that would be appropriate because Isaac is like a rehash of Abraham. I could do a really poor rehash of it and that would be even more appropriate because Isaac's like a really poor rehash of Abraham. But I'm not going to. Part of God's faithfulness is, demonst- is the de- demonstrable keeping of his promises. God doesn't just make promises that we have to believe because he is God. He doesn't pull, well I'm the, I am God... He doesn't pull that card on us to say that we have to believe. He demonstrates that he is believable. He demonstrates that he is faithful by being faithful. God is at work in the world in tangible ways. He's not just at work in mysterious ways. Sometimes that's where Christianity retreats to, you know. Oh, God's at work in some mysterious ways. No, he's not. He's at work in tangible ways. Because that's how God works. And God is a force for life and flourishing. One of the, one of the things that I repeated endlessly last week was about this idea of God is flourishing. God is life versus the powers of death and chaos. Where death and chaos encroach, God pushes back vigorously with flourishing and life. The way that God works in this world in a tangible ways, in miraculous ways, it can be surprising and unexpected. Very rarely can we put God in a box and say, this is exactly what God's going to do next. But what we do know is God is going to do something. So the way God works can be surprising. It can be unexpected. It can be infuriating sometimes. But the divine faithfulness and activity has tangible results. In the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms, they reckon about like um, almost, I don't know, it's like 60 Psalms or something, are Psalms of lament. And, and, and a lot of them end up saying, I will still trust that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Like we said at the start, poop happens. But I still trust. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Going right back to the start of the year when Steve was talking about Psalm 23. And so Isaac is a tangible, physical demonstration 
a living, breathing testimony of God's faithfulness to his word. Isaac himself might be overshadowed even in his own story. But he is a story of God. Physically, he is proof of God. Physically, he is a demonstration of the miraculous. His presence, his very presence in the Bible is a message. Whether he had a spectacular life or not is by the by. He being there is a message itself. He is a miracle. He is the faithfulness of God in flesh. He is an incarnation of God's deep relationship with his creation. We can point to Isaac and say, look, that is a proof that God works and is active in history. Um, oftentimes we deal in abstractions, don't we? Um, I talk a lot in abstractions. I talk a lot about thoughts, how we think about things, um, how we interpret things, how we view things. Um, and we develop these ideas, ideologies, doctrines. <clears throat> and we might logically build a case, which is oftentimes what we do in preaching. We logically build a case. We build a rational case for certain things happening and why we believe what we believe. You know, we build it like a court case oftentimes. Why do I believe what I believe? Um, well, this is X, Y, Z. You know, this is where I can find it in this document. This is, this is what proves my beliefs are rational. Um, when we talk about abstractions, Richard Beck in his book, um, Re- what's it called, Reviving Our Scratch, he, he quotes uh, the Peanuts, you know, the Charlie Brown comic strip. He says, I love humanity. It's just people that I can't stand. Because often we can do this, can't we? We can love humanity in the abstract but when it comes to the grit and grind of the day to day man I can't stand people (laughs) you know and that's how abstraction versus physicality works the problem is is that even though for all of our great theologians and I love reading theology Christianity is not primarily abstract notions about God or doctrine or dogma but is a concrete physical revelation of God active in the world in history for life and flourishing Christianity is primarily about God being active in the world an active presence in the world for life and flourishing all of the words around that are just dressing and we see this in its sharpest most pointed articulation in Jesus Christ that is the revel- that is the revelation of God in the world, active, physically active, for life and flourishing. And like I said, it occurs in surprising and unexpected ways. To be a force for life and flourishing, Jesus hung on a cross. But he was vindicated and he rose again and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. The miracles of God are tangible in our lives. The work of God is tangible, it's physical, it's never removed from the reality, it's never out of the poop of our lives. But it occurs in unexpected and surprising ways. Our God is a present and a miracle-working God, like we say. A God who is demonstrably faithful and concretely at work against death and chaos. Therefore our hope is never in vain, because we know that God is faithful. Why do we know that God is faithful? Not because he says he is faithful, although that could be enough, but because he demonstrates that he is faithful. Isaac is a demonstration of his faithfulness. Jesus Christ is a demonstration of his faithfulness. Sarah is a demonstration of his faithfulness. 
God's goodness and faithfulness is all worked out concretely, embodied, and that is miraculous. I could digress and try and build a theodicy. I could try and build a case uh, for why, if God is this good, if God is this faithful, if God is this loving, if God is this active in tangible ways, why, are any, why is anybody sick? Why did the things that happened in New Zealand happen if God is this good? And you know what? I'm going to hold my hand up and say, I, I don't know. I could probably um, read some quotes from books that would actually be quite compelling. But honestly, I don't know. But I do know that God is faithful, that he is good, because I cannot deny it as much as I want to deny it. You know, I went through a, a period in, in my faith where we, we call it like deconstruction. And probably I'm still going through it. But I was like, you know, did miracles really happen? Did, did I really experience some of these things? You know, I went to a youth camp when I was probably 18 or 19. I, I was a leader. And I prayed for a kid with really bad eczema. Like, awful. Next day he came back and it was gone. I struggle with eczema. Yet that happened. So on one side I can say, God, why? Why? And to be honest, I do that a lot. And then on the other side, I can say, but that happened. So I can still hope. There is a tangible reality of the miracles of God. And therefore I still have hope. So what does that mean? I can still ask why. God isn't afraid of why. God isn't scared. God isn't insecure. I can still ask why, but I can still hope. At the heart of our faith, there are many miracles, and Isaac is one of them. Like I've said, emphatically, Genesis says that Sarah was barren, that she had no child. Barrenness in the ancient world was seen as a curse. It was seen as the absence of a deity's favour. It was seen as the encroachment of death and chaos to be barren Hi. <laughs> 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 oh that was ace um, so where was I yeah barrenness was seen as a curse an absence of, of the presence of a deity contrary to that to have many generations so oftentimes you'll notice in the bible They'll talk about somebody dying with their children's children or their grandchildren's children around them. To have many generations around you was seen as life and flourishing. So barrenness was seen as part of death and chaos. And many generations, progeny, was seen as blessing. And then just to, to re-emphasise the point of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham is said to be really old. As in, his force for life and flourishing is diminishing when he's really old. You know, Abraham remarks on this. He gets commented on in Hebrews. I wonder what it would be like to be a guy uh, when generations of ancient manuscripts comment on your virility. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? So Genesis is emphatic about there is no chance. There is no chance... Here. There is no chance of this promise coming true. God, your promise sounds great. And it was really encouraging when you gave it. 
But seriously, God, I'm really old. My wife's barren. It ain't happening. Let's figure out something else. It's really encouraging to say they had Ishmael. They contrived a way of making God's feel-good promises come to pass. And they got Ishmael. <clears throat> and yet God pushes back against the death and chaos that's encroaching on the lives. How subversive of God. Again, you'll recognise that subversive is one of my favourite ways to reference God. Who better to talk about who better to demonstrate God's faithfulness in the land of the living against death and chaos than somebody that's a, a couple that are so consumed by death and chaos that to produce life would take a miracle working God. And yet that's what he chose. He didn't say, okay, yeah, Ishmael's a pretty good approximation actually. Nice try. Yeah, we'll go with that. We'll run with that. that that's our plan B. God just says, look, I'll bless Ishmael, don't worry. I'll look after Ishmael. But that's not the way this promise works. My life fights against death and chaos. My life doesn't come in practical, realistic ways. My life comes in unimaginable ways. Because if you're limited to just what you think you can implement, what you think you can work out, your imagination is not yet big enough. Abraham, we're going to wait a few years. And then we'll see about this promise. <clears throat> Isaac is hope in flesh. He is the blessing of God in a body. God's loving relational faithfulness is demonstrated in tangible ways, miraculous and tangible ways. And again, this physical, miraculous, tangible working of God is seen in its sharpest and most clearest relief in Jesus. Jesus is our benchmark. I just want to um, tell you a story about how God works in unexpected ways but in tangible ways. When I used to work for Open Doors, um, I did a youth weekend away in Ireland um, for like a, a youth group that was like 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds. Uh, it was such a wonderful youth group. And so I, I flew into to Belfast and I went to the church and, and when I arrived on, on like the Thursday, I think we were going away on the Friday, Look, I sat down with the, lead, the youth leaders and the leaders of the church and they said um, what, one, of, one of the girls that comes to this youth group uh, her father was found hanging in a barn on the Wednesday night and we don't know what's really going to happen but the mum has said that she should come uh, just to try and have a bit of, of a normal <coughs> framework while the mum and the elder sister try and deal with this situation. So that this this little girl came on the, the, the weekend away. And you know I I'm not equipped to deal with that sort of emotional what what do you do when you know, like these youth weekends away, you know what youth weekends are, they're, they're supposed to be fun, right? And, and you have all these activities and, and everything and I was just like, you know, do you do you want to cancel it like and, and they were like, no, 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 we should do it. We should try and just, just make things as normal for her as possible. Fair enough. And I was talking that weekend, I planned this whole series of stuff about walking, it's called Footsteps Through Mark. Um, not you, mate. <laughs> the gospel. Um, and all of it was about like making Jesus tangible. 
what was it to be like with Jesus at that time? So stuff we would do, like obviously as a youth weekend away, so there's loads of activities, but what we would do is look on a map of where Jesus walked, you know, because all through the Gospels it tells you where Jesus was, and we'd talk about how far that was. And then we'd go and do an activity and, and, and then figure out how far we'd walked, and then come back and look at how far we would have gone on the map with Jesus. And it was all about making Jesus real, right? Making Jesus tangible. And again, subversive God, completely ironic. What did I know about making Jesus real? But this little girl, because like, in the back of my head, it's like, what are we going to do? We gonna... And just her friends, just to watch over that weekend how her friends gathered around her and, and included her. They didn't make her be like, they, they weren't like, oh, are you okay, dear? Let, let's put you in a corner and let's wrap you in cotton wool. So, like, oh, do you want to come play football? Do you want to come throw stones in a lake? Do you want to go make dents? And this little girl, even though the tragedy that had happened in her life, and it wasn't to say that the tragedy didn't happen or to make her forget that it happened, but it was just like these kids just loved on her. They just loved on her and made Jesus present to her that in some bizarre and weird way, she found some measure of of catharsis, of, of, of not closure, because I think the idea of closure when, when, when something like that happens it is a weird thing as if we're trying to put it away. But somehow she found some sort of healing and life within being within that youth group. And, and seriously, it was nothing to do with me or the message about making Jesus real. It was just these kids making Jesus real. God is an incarnational God. He is not removed or aloof or someplace else. I know it's just really pedantic of me, but it really jars with me when we talk about God and say, and then he turned up. There's this bit where, you know, when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, and then they're having their kind of showdown. And, and so they're like, okay, Elijah says, I'll get a bull here, and you guys get a bull over there, all thousand of you, and we'll cut it up and prepare it, and then we'll ask our God, so I'll ask Yahweh, you guys ask Baal, to come and consume it with fire. And so he says, you guys go first. You know, there's a lot of you, you go for it. And so the prophets of Baal, they cut themselves, they do their dances, they sing their songs, they do all their stuff. And so Elijah's kind of stood there, and it's brilliant, because in the original Hebrew, what he says is, where's Baal? Is he in the toilet? Is he indisposed? It's like, my God is here. My God is present already. We're just watching you guys make fools of yourself. God isn't aloof or far away. He's not indisposed. God is not in the toilet when you need him. God is present and active in tangible and miraculous ways. God is a force and a presence for life and flourishing. John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and life in abundance. And our hope is based in Jesus Christ. The incarnate one, the resurrected one, the ascended one. Our hope is in him because he who is promised is faithful. Hebrews 10. And going back to Romans 4.17. Jesus is the one who calls forth and enables by his spirit life and flourishing. Where death and chaos have overtaken, Jesus is the one that calls forth life. We sang the song Lazarus, right? In spite of death 
and chaos reigning in Sarah and Abraham's life, Isaac came. God is the one who calls forth things that do not exist as though they did. There was no progeny for Abraham when God made that promise. There was zero hope. It was not in Abraham or Sarah's power to contrive to make this thing work, even though they tried. God is the one that calls forth things that do not exist as though they are. And Abraham, sure enough, had Isaac. And Isaac, sure enough, had Jacob. And Jacob, sure enough, had Joseph. And Joseph, sure enough, saw Israel come. And Israel, sure enough, saw Jesus come. Does it, incur, does it always occur in ways that we expect? No, it doesn't. And I'd love to have tidy answers. Ishmael is the tidy answer. Isaac is the miraculous, tangible way that God works. And unfortunately, it can blow our minds. We can call it mysterious. But God is at work in this world for life and flourishing. So... Going back to what I shared a few weeks ago, we remember and recite the past acts of God's faithfulness with an expectancy of them being renewed to occur in our world, in our circumstances, in the poop, in tangible and miraculous ways. Death and chaos are never the last word because we always have this tangible and miraculous hope because God is faithful and we know that God is faithful because Isaac, because Jesus, because Sarah, because love. So I'm, I'm finished there. But what I want to do is I want, to, uh, I want us to pray.